Good morning. How is everybody this morning? Man, it's good to see you all. So in, in September of 1620, a small ship left from England with 102 passengers, 102 passengers that had decided to embrace this journey for a variety of reasons. Uh, perhaps most commonly known was the religious persecution that many of them faced in their home country. Uh, others really wanted to embrace this journey because of the opportunity that it presented, opportunity for new discovery, adventure, land, prosperity. Uh, whatever it was, you had 102 people that, that got on this boat and began to set sail for what would eventually be 66 days on the ocean, 66 days encountering all the unknowns and the, the concerns and the fears of being on sail on the open water. And then finally, after that amount of time, uh, the Mayflower passed through the Massachusetts Bay and landed and began the beginnings of the work to settle a town in a village that we all refer to as Plymouth. All right? it, was a, it was a fascinating journey, and it was about a year later, November 1621, where the first corn harvest had proven to be successful. And so these passengers, now villagers, gathered together with some local alliances, the, the Wampanoag Indians, uh, to, to name a few, and they decided to have a feast for three days to celebrate what was taking place in their lives. They, they sat around the table. They had grandmother's dressing and sweet potato casserole and pecan pie. And then they finished by watching the Dallas Cowboys end in a frustrating game. And it was uh, the first Thanksgiving. It was the first Thanksgiving in 1621. And really, since that time, you had all these different villages and all these different people that would have some time in which they would set aside a feast of celebration, a feast of gratitude or thanksgiving as a result of the harvest. Now, the, the difference was is that it wasn't coordinated. It wasn't all at the same point in time or season of the year. And so for centuries, it, it existed that way until 1863. Uh, 1863, in the middle of the Civil War, ironically, President Lincoln declared that there would be a day of thanksgiving for the nation. Uh, that it would be a day to be mindful of those who had been orphaned, those who had been widowed, and the violence that was taking place. And within that declaration, it would be so that, so that there could be healing for the nation, right? That there, there could be an opportunity for the nation to heal from its wounds. And so from that moment forward, with the exception of two years under Franklin Roosevelt, where the date changed, we as a, as a nation have celebrated a day of Thanksgiving on that last Thursday in November. And, and it's been a a constant tradition for us. Now, what stands out to me in both the origins of Thanksgiving as well as the standardization of it by Lincoln is the manner in which this day of gratitude was kind of birthed, right? It, both of them, we see that this sense of gratitude and Thanksgiving was birthed out of difficulty, right? It was birthed out of hardship, right? Whether it was the religious persecution that caused them to flee or the, the dangers of actually being on the open waters for 66 days or the struggle to actually foster and cultivate your own town, your own village, or, or even just the labor of, of producing a harvest. It, this was a day that was celebrated in the midst of, of trouble, in the midst of difficulty. Same can be said for when it was standardized. I mean, the irony there that it would be in the midst of civil war, in the midst of animosity, division, bloodshed, that, that we would stop and give thanks and it's a reminder to each of us, right, that, that a, lot of tude, a lot of times gratitude is best discovered and best found in the midst of hardship, right? And so many of us come into this week perhaps carrying our own struggles, carrying our own difficulties, our own problems, and it's important for us to stop and to give thanks for what God is doing. And it's a great reminder that no matter what we face, we can always find a sense of gratitude. 
Now, the other reason that I, I bring that to our attention this morning is because a lot of times it is the difficulty, it is the challenges, it is the struggles that help us identify what it is that we should cherish, right? What it is that we should be grateful for, what are the things that we should hold dear? And that is such an important element to, to where we are in the course of this series, right? We, we've been talking about this emphasis on missions for the last several weeks. And it's important that in the midst of talking about all these different things, we stop on this day and say, but, but we can only do that if we truly cherish, if we're truly grateful for what God has done. In fact, there's a, there's a quote that I want to share with you this morning that comes from John Piper's Let the Nations Be Glad. I read this book when I was a freshman in college, and it totally changed my perspective on missions on so many different ways and so many different levels. And, and to me, he focuses us so well. Here's what he says. He says, you can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad who cannot save from the heart. I rejoice in the Lord. Man, what a beautiful reminder for us on this Sunday, right? The last couple of weeks, we've talked about what does it mean to, to share this gospel, to declare this gospel, but the only way that we truly can invite others to experience good news is if we actually cherish it as good news ourselves. And so that's what today is about an opportunity for us to cherish what God has done, an opportunity to be grateful for who he is and to look to, to him and to his heart. And so, as is often the case, I just want to pray for us before we open his sacred text, for, for his word to be living and active and for it to awaken our hearts to truly cherish who he is. And so let's pray together. Would you close your eyes? Father in heaven, we invite you now to come into our hearts, into our minds, into our souls, that you would awaken us to the beauty of this gospel. God, that the, the words of the psalmist would echo in our hearts and our souls this morning as we would truly figure out what does it mean to worship you, to be joyful in you, and to cherish you. Father, we know it is, it is not by any message, it is not by a sermon or by a song, but only by your spirit that we can be stirred. And so be with us now. We are your servants. We humble ourselves before your throne to your glory and to your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 67. We had a chance to read it in a, in a reading and response, responsive reading earlier, uh, but we're going to look at it again here in just a second. For the last couple of weeks, we started this missions emphasis, and really what we've used as an image to kind of navigate this journey is this idea of a harvest, right? And, and we've talked in the first two weeks, what does it mean for us to be workers in the harvest field, right? What does it mean for us to work in the fields of the Lord, so to speak. And, and we looked at this in a very broad scoping way in the first week, looking at Matthew chapter 9, where we have that famous passage of, of the Lord of the harvest and pray for God to send out more workers. But what we looked at more generally was this idea is that to work in the harvest, to be missional, means to we, we embrace all people, right? We go to every single person, just like Jesus went to every town and village. And then what do we do? We proclaim, we, we teach, and we heal, right? That, those were the things that Jesus did for us. And we do that motivated by compassion, right? That was kind of the first introduction to this whole call to be workers in the harvest field. And then last week, we got very specific. It was Orphan Sunday, and we said, hey, here's an, here's an actual thing you can do to work for the Lord. We, we can look after the orphan and the widow, right? We keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. And we looked at that responsibility to be a church that loves the fatherless, and, and so we've had a chance to really drive home this emphasis of being workers in the field. But today, we continue on that image, and we say, well, it's not just that we want to work in the field. We want to know who the Lord of the harvest is, right? We want to know God himself. We want to see his heart, his character, and his nature. And so that's what 
the whole uh, motivation is when we look at Psalm 67 today is get a greater insight to who God is. Now, here's a couple of things about the structure of Psalm 67. It is a psalm of thanksgiving, at least that's how it's often referred to, so it's appropriate for this week. Uh, but it also really kind of has just a very simple emphasis, right? When you read through it, the emphasis is pretty much on God's blessing and then how his blessings are known throughout the earth, right? And so that's kind of the, the progression that we'll walk through today. And, and it is a prayer, right? You can see it's a supplication from the psalmist, right? Let the nations be glad. May the peoples rejoice. It's, it's kind of a request. So the psalmist is asking questions. And, and I think that's important for us to look at and consider because it helps us see the nature of our God, right? It helps us see the character of our God because the psalmist isn't going to ask questions if he doesn't believe God is actually capable of responding in that way, right? That, that's how we all function. Let me give you an example, okay? One of the questions I used to hate having to answer uh, when I was in school was what my major was. I hated that question because I didn't have a really cool answer, right? I, di I didn't have anything that was really impressive like uh, you know, aerospace engineering or pre-law or pre-med. I, I didn't have anything. In fact, uh, it was a pretty sad liberal arts answer. When people asked me, so what are you studying? My answer was letters, right? And it was. It was classics and letters, history, literature, philosophy, and languages. And, and yet, without fail, every time I answered, somebody would go, oh, you're studying the alphabet? And I was like, yeah, that's what I'm studying. Thank you, right? And so it was always frustrating. Uh, I didn't have that cool answer. And so here's the deal. I took that degree because I knew I wanted to go to seminary or law school, and, and that was kind of the track that you took. But when I sat down with my guidance counselor, I asked him, I said, so tell me about math and science. And they said, okay, well, here's the, here's the deal. You need one year of science and a semester of math. And I said, sold. Sign me up. That is me. And it's not that I couldn't do math. I just didn't enjoy math, okay? So, so you need help with a paper. You need help with philosophy, research, history. Then people ask me those questions all the time. Guess what questions I'm not getting asked? Science, right? Help me with algebra. Like, that's not me because it's not within my uh, skill set. It's not within my nature to be able to do those things, right? We ask questions of people that we think can help, right? We ask questions that we think this, this is something this person is capable of. So when we look at the prayers of the psalmist, it's revealing the nature of God, right? He, he anticipates God to respond in such a way because this is who God is. And so we want to have that in mind as we read through Psalm 67. So if you have your Bibles, let's take a look and let's read this psalm together. Starting in verse one. May God be gracious to us and bless us. Make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy for you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. I love this psalm. It's one of my favorites. And, and it, it, it's one of my favorites because I feel like it really does reveal the nature of who God is. And so the psalmist introduces us to one of the, the chief characteristics of God with that opening line, may God be gracious to us. Right? So the psalmist is aware that our God is one who is able to extend Grace. Now, how does he know that? How does the psalmist know that he can ask God to be gracious? Well, I would, I would reason to believe that he was probably told at some point in his life. Right? He, he was probably instructed in the stories of his people. 
Right? He probably, as a young boy, had heard his father, his mother, explain to him that moment when Moses was before the presence of God and God passed in front of Moses, putting his hand over in him and speaking his name, saying, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Right? He had heard, he had been told, this is who God is. But in addition to that, I'm willing to bet he had experienced it personally. At some point, At some point in his life, he'd actually felt the actual grace of God being extended to him. And so what is grace? Well, grace is is this undeserved gift, right? It's this understanding that there is something that has been given from a superior to an inferior where the inferior person had no claim, no right to it, right? No ability to actually ask for it. And so I'm curious this morning, how have you experienced the graciousness of God? Has it been something you've been told throughout your life? Has it been matched with experiences, moments where you have felt this this undeniable sense within your heart that God has done something that was undeserved? Something that you didn't have a right to or a claim to. See, it's important for us to stop and evaluate and and not lose sight of the graciousness of God because a lot of times we we don't often pray that way. It's not uncommon for us to, to actually think that we can make demands before God. Right, that we do have certain rights that we can lay claim to. And so we ask for God to do certain things. And, and, and when we often do that, if we're not careful, we can drift away from seeing the graciousness that he actually provides us. Right? We, we never want to lose sight of the grace that God offers. And, and that grace leads to blessing. Right? Be gracious to us and bless us. And again, how did the psalmist know that this God was capable of blessing? Again, he was probably familiar with the stories of his people, right? That his people, that the whole covenant had been established through a promise of blessing, right? The moment when God called Abram and said, go to the land that I'll show you, and I will make you a blessing to all nations. The whole premise of these people coming together was, was driven by the blessings of God. But again, can't we imagine that at some level, he'd experience those blessings personally? And that's true for you and I. Right, that that we, we've had a chance to, to not just hear, but to experience the blessings of God in our life. But here's the struggle that we often encounter when we wrestle with God's blessing for our life. If, if we're not careful, again, we tend to focus on the things that we don't have as opposed to the things that we have. And that often clouds our ability to see the blessings of God. We, we struggle with being content. Right? We, we struggle with being uh, satisfied with what he has given. It's always what hasn't happen to us and so we try to lay claim to those things we try to demand those things and we lose that ability to be content we lose that ability to be grateful we spend so much time worried about the uncertainties of tomorrow rather than just being grateful for the beauty of today and that limits our ability to see the blessings that God provides us now in addition to that a lot of times we just don't really know what qualifies as a blessing not only do we struggle to even be mindful of it, but when we are, a lot of times we, we consider things blessings that maybe aren't really blessings, right? A lot of times we, we equate blessings to some form of success, right? Some form of, of accumulation, right? We, we, we have success in our jobs and our careers and God has blessed us, right? We have uh, luxury and fortune and God has blessed us. We find that front row parking spot and God has blessed us. Right? And we, we attribute all these blessings to things that, that may not really be evident in the scripture. 
we have this misconception. What we forget is that Jesus reminds us who's blessed. Right? He says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the, the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted and insulted for me. That's where blessing exists. The more and more we turn through the pages of Scripture, we, we have this paradigm shift that helps us to see that God's grace and his blessings often arrive in the most unexpected places. Right, that blessing isn't really found in staying in the comforts of home with friends and family, but actually going to the land that he will show us. Right, the blessings aren't always secured in the strength of an army, but really found in the courage of a shepherd boy who's willing to face a giant. Right, blessings aren't always established in some earthly dominion, but rather found in a humble manger. Right, it's often the unexpected places that we find the blessings of God. And so we need to be mindful of that as we consider that, that, yes, God is gracious. Yes, God wants to bless us, but let us not have our vision clouded to where we can't even recognize it. Now, the psalmist continues, <clears throat> right? Let, let us see God grace, be gracious in his, let him bless us and let his face shine upon us. And now with that opening verse, it really sounds like this prayer that you see in Numbers chapter 6. And, and that phrase, let his face shine upon us, once again just reminds us of God's presence, Right, that he looks upon us, that we are near him, that he is in proximity. And we can't lose sight that that is such an incredible blessing. See, so many times we think that blessings are found in luxury and comfort. And so that's what we pursue. And so that's, that's the question that we all need to wrestle with today. What, what is it that you're pursuing? Where is it that you think you can find the blessings of God? Is it in luxury and comfort or in his presence? Because his presence doesn't always equate to ease. It doesn't always equate to comfort, but it does equate to blessing. Oh, if we could just be in the presence of the Lord, we would find his grace. We would find his blessing. We would be in his presence. And it's, it's there that the psalmist teaches us that it's there we find salvation. Right? That, that he has come to rescue us. He has come to make a way. Right? It actually literally means to make wide, to, to make open. He has come to save. Now, a lot of times, again, we, we get part of the way there. We get like halfway there with our understanding of salvation. Because on this side of the cross, on this side of the New Testament, we often equate salvation to soul saving, right? I, I've put my faith in Jesus and therefore my soul has been saved. Yes, praise God, amen. But we need to also remember that when you look at this in the Old Testament, there's this was often offered in the spirit of an actual saving from actual enemies, from, from real present despair. It is a complete and holistic and total salvation. And that is something we should never lose sight of because, yes, God wants to save you and wants to save your souls, but he wants to do more than that. And he will do more than that. He, he will eliminate at some point, maybe not in this life, but he will eliminate the pain of disease. He will eliminate the despair of broken homes. There is nothing, nothing wrong with us longing for God to save us from our actual circumstances because that's what he desires to do. He didn't come to just redeem our souls. He came to redeem all of it. That's the salvation that we long for. And so you, you read the opening lines of the psalm and it's overwhelming with its good news. 
It's overwhelming with the joy that it can bring to us, right? That God is gracious. He blesses us. He gives us salvation. His presence is near. And yet, the psalmist is quick to point out that all those things are not purely for your benefit. And how often is that what we equate our experience with Jesus to be? Right? That I'm going to go to church so my life can get better. Right? I'm going to start doing these things so I can kind of clean myself up so that I can have a better way of life. Yes, great, but it doesn't stop there. Why does he extend his grace, his blessing, his presence, his salvation? So that his ways may be known among the earth. Right? His, his blessings are always meant to be shared. They're always meant to be proclaimed. They're always meant to extend beyond just ourselves. And so when we encounter these blessings, when we encounter this grace, it should be received in such a way that allows us to extend that message to others. And that's where the psalmist leads us, right? He begins to have this conversation about peoples and nations, right? Let all the peoples praise you. Let all the nations be glad. And, and again, we see the same message that we talked about two weeks ago. We see that, that word all, Right? There's a totality with which we embrace the mission of God. He is not looking just for some people, a few nations, a few peoples. He wants all nations. All people need to have the opportunity to experience this gift of God. And so the, the tendencies that we have to prejudge or to disclaim or to determine prematurely who can receive these blessings is not to know the heart of God. It is for all people. Right? And, and we have this description of nations and peoples. Now, this is a really interesting uh, terminology that's used here in this psalm. When, when you look at it in the Hebrew, there's actually three different words that are used here for nations and peoples. Okay, the first is goyim, right? That's, I don't know how great that's pronounced in Hebrew, but that's what I'm going with today. Goyim, okay? And that was a term that was typically attributed to, um, typically attributed to uh, the, the people that were outside of God's covenant. Okay, th- this would be kind of the Gentiles, right, the pagan surrounding nations. Now, amim, which is another word that's used here, was typically the word that was used for the covenant people, right, the, the one that God had established through, through Abraham, right, and th- this was God's chosen people. And so the third term, leamim, was really more of a synonym for both. And so you have three different terms that are being used here for, for nations and peoples. And, and so what we see here is this undeniable desire, kind of this, this leaning into this messianic era where God wants all people, not just his covenant people, but even the surrounding nations to be brought together in one. That's always been his desire. His heart has always been for the nations. It's always been for all peoples. And I, I want to make sure we don't lose sight of that, that it's not just evident in Psalm 67. I want to read to you just a few excerpts from some other scriptures. I'm, I'm going to limit it just to the Psalms and the prophet Isaiah, but it's, it's throughout the passages of the scriptures. But listen to how consistently God reveals his heart for the nations. Psalm 9, seeing the praises of the Lord enthroned in Zion, proclaim among the nations what he has done. Psalm 96, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Psalm 105, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all you nations, extol him, all you peoples. Isaiah 12, in that day you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Isaiah 49, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends 
of the earth. Isaiah 56, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Isaiah 66, and I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages. They will come and see my glory. God's heart is undeniably for the nations, is yours. Now, I, I know that a lot of times when we start thinking about what it means to, to extend these blessings and to extend this graciousness to people that, that don't look like us, that think differently than us, that, that threaten us, that create concerns, that a lot of times it creates hesitation. And so some of you may be sitting there saying, man, that's good, I get it, thank you for reading scriptures, but that's just not me. I just don't have that passion to, to cross cultures or to speak with somebody that's different. I don't, I don't have that sense of desire. And so maybe that's for someone else to pursue. And you just try to keep it at arm's length. Well, I want to challenge that, that, that really what should motivate us is not necessarily what we're passionate about or even if we're good at it or capable, but just simply understanding that it's God's heart. That should be sufficient, right? That, that should be enough, right? Think of it this way. Um, let, me, let me give you an example with camping, okay? Um, camping, there was a time in my life that I did enjoy camping, right? I love it now, but there was a time when I didn't. And part of it was because it always seemed um, irrational to me, right? It's like the whole course of human civilization is, is like the anti-camping experience. It's like we're trying to get out of the woods, and then all of a sudden people are like, no, let's go back, you know, and avoid all these things that we've developed and all this technology. And so at first, it was just irrational. Second, I didn't really grow up with it, okay? Like my family, we spelled camping H-O-T-E-L, okay? That was how we camped in, in my home. And, and so I, I'd never really desired it that much. I didn't hate it, but I never really desired it. But then I married Jennifer, and totally opposite experience, right? Her, her family grew up camping. She loved camping. And so I decided to embrace it because it was her passion. And, and over time, I have grown to love it. Now, I didn't go into it loving it. I didn't go into it having a certain skill set and a capability, Right? I, I didn't know how to do certain things, but over time, I've figured things out. I'm better at building a tent now. I'm better at making a fire. Those starter logs from the grocery store are amazing, much better than dousing it with lighter fluid. Like, it's way more effective. So, like, I've learned, right? And now I love it. The fact that she was passionate about it was enough. Right, so if we're sitting there going, well, that's just not for me. Listen, your God loves the nations. So should you. Right? And, and you may not have the skill set. You may not have the ability, but, but the more you press into the heart of God, the more that he will equip you and give you a heart for all peoples. All right, we've said it from day one. Missions is more than an endeavor into the world. It's an endeavor into the heart of God. God loves the nations. Do you? Now, the other thing that I think is so important in seeing God's love for the nation is it's, it's like the Tower of Babel in reverse. Right? There's something incredibly beautiful that happens when we see the nations come together. We see the beauty of unity expressed through diversity. Right? When, when we lack that sort of diversity, we lack the ability to fully reveal the sort of beauty that God wants us to express through the gospel. Right? When we all look the same and we all gravitate to people that are the same and treat us the same, what, what good is that, Jesus says? Everyone does that. There's a certain desire for diversity that God wants us to pursue, right? There's a certain uh, strength that we need to discover when we find that sort of unity, though that we are different, right? And, and we often avoid that because it's so easy for us to not pursue unity in our context today, isn't it, right? right? It's so easy for us just to, 
to go somewhere else. And part of that, if, if you want to know my honest opinion, kind of finds its, its origins in our nation's heritage. When you think about it, it, we had all this land, we had all this expanse that people could go. So you would be in a village, you'd be in a church, you'd be in some, some colony or whatever, and things didn't go well, you were, you were marginalized, you were ostracized, you know what you could do? You could leave and you could go start your own. And then you could leave there and go start your own. There was always something that you could expand to. And so it's almost kind of embedded within us and, and within our heritage that, man, things get tough. We don't agree. All right, I'll just disassociate. I'll go somewhere else. And we lose the power of striving for unity and that diversity. I think, think if that was actually the vision of the church. Right? So often the church is driven by the question of, of numbers and growth. Right? And, and so our vision often centers around this question of how many people can come. Well, what if the vision was centered around who's not yet here? Right? Do we have the immigrant among us? Do we have the marginalized, the outcast? Do we have the, the one that doesn't look like us? Do we have the single mother? Do we have the impoverished? Do we ha- who is not here? What if that was what truly drove our vision. See, that's where the gospel begins to flourish, right? Because what we see in light of Christ is that there is something greater that pulls us together. These, these earthly barriers are destroyed, and now neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female, slave or free, we're all one in Jesus Christ. There is beauty in the midst of this diversity that we should pursue. And that's why we, we desire all peoples. That's why we desire all nations to give praise and glory and honor to God. And so, so that's the way in which the, the psalmist progresses. We desire these things, and, and when we see it, what happens? That it's an eruption for joy. It's an eruption for praise, right? Let, let the nations be glad, right? Let the peoples rejoice. Let us sing for joy. It's an invitation to worship. It's an invitation to cherish who God is. Now, why are we worshiping? What's the cause of the devotion here beyond just the grace and the blessings and his presence? Well, here it says, because he rules the peoples with equity. Right? He guides the nations. This is what's going to evoke our praise. It's this opportunity to see that God is just. He makes things right. He guides the nations. Right? That, that word guidance means that he reveals a way of salvation. Now, you and I know that the way of salvation is fully expressed through the person of Jesus Christ. That's how he's known. That's why we worship. That's what gives us a reason to sing for joy. That's what gives us the reason to be glad and to rejoice before God. You want to understand the grace of God in its fullness, then look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. You want to understand the blessings that God has extended to you, then look to Jesus Christ. Christ. You want to understand the assurance that his presence will never leave you or forsake you, then look to Emmanuel, the one who we refer to as God with us. You want to understand salvation? You want to understand rescue? You want to understand redemption? Then look to Jesus Christ, the one whom death itself could not defeat. You want to understand all these blessings? You want to figure out how it is that we rejoice and how it is that we worship? Then we look to Jesus Christ. He's the one that we commit ourselves to. He is the one that we long to worship. And that's what the psalmist is inviting us to. We have the opportunity to see this psalm being fulfilled. We have the opportunity on this side of the cross to see that this prayer was, in fact, answered. 
And so we get to come in here today, and regardless of our circumstances or situations, we have the chance to cherish the grace, blessings, and presence of Jesus Christ. And that is enough. No matter the difficulty, no matter the circumstances, that is enough for us to give praise. I love the way that this psalm ends. What does it say? The land yields its harvest. Another way to to read that, perhaps, is to understand God will fulfill his promises. Right? There, there will be a harvest. It will happen. Right? It, it will produce fruit. So may God continue to bless us so that his ways may be known on earth. Listen, we've talked extensively over the last couple of weeks about the importance of exhausting ourselves for the gospel, laboring for the gospel, being workers in the field. And we get to look to this psalm and we get the assurance your labor is not in vain. The land yields its harvest. His promises are sure. This Jesus of Nazareth that that started in Bethlehem and and began to commit himself to a ministry in Jerusalem, poured over into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and you and I are beneficiaries of the movement of that gospel. This psalm has been fulfilled, and it gives us reason to sing. It gives us reason to rejoice. We have no chance to commend what we do not cherish. And so do you cherish him today? It's very simple. We have a chance to see the nature of our God, to see that he is truly gracious, he wants to bless us, he wants to save us. Do you truly cherish that? Do you truly worship him for who he is?